are such a needy people. Sometimes we don't realize how needy we are because you have provided for us so abundantly and so well. And yet we know that every breath that we take is a result of your grace to us. We know that you are active in our lives, active in the lives of this church as a, as a body as well. Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonders to be found in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, this morning, before we read the passage uh, that's before us, just wanted to talk to the moms a little bit. And this is not to uh, invite anyone else to tune out, for I think there are lessons that we also need to learn that this morning we're specifically going to apply to our moms, but they're certainly not uh, limited there. There is a lot of overlap, in other words. And I wanted to talk to moms for a couple of reasons. One, because it's, of course, Mother's Day, and we think about mothers on uh, this one particular Sunday of the year. And secondly, because moms have a tough job. They have a tough job, and I don't think there's anyone who is here this morning would not know that unless you're so young that you're not even listening to me, you're just coloring on your coloring book. <laughs> if you're of any age, you know how tough it is on your mom. When you're a kid and you're a little older, you know how much you depend upon your mom and all the stress and strain that you put her through on a daily basis. Moms have a tough time, and I don't think they can help but worry and fret over their families, especially over their children. You've seen that. I think it's somehow ingrained in who God has made them to be. Sometimes I think I'm helping my wife when I tell her to relax and not worry about another frustrating dilemma that one of our children happened to be facing. Dads, have you ever said that? Just relax. And you know what they hear when they hear that? They hear you saying, chill. And I know our kids, when we say chill, that just drives them crazy because it just makes you even more anxious. And of course, that's the reaction I get. She says, that's my job. I can't help but be anxious over how my family is doing. We get that. It's a hard, hard job. And as if the thing, the job isn't hard enough, there's all kinds of compounding external forces that would make it even more difficult. I mean, we think about when Mother's Day came to be something that was marked on the calendar. It came under uh, uh, the proclamation of President uh, Woodrow Wilson back in 1914 when he said the second Sunday of May would be a national holiday for the purpose of honoring mothers. And that seems such an ironic thing to say in today's culture, that we would honor mothers. Not to say that mothers in themselves as people aren't worthy of mothers, but the idea of being a mother seems to be less and less viewed the same way as it once was, especially in, as it was in 1914. So it is a little bit confusing, I think. I wonder how much longer this holiday will last on the calendar, Mother's Day. Maybe if Hallmark has anything to do with it, it'll last a long time. But we are a culture of doublespeak. Everyone wants to praise his mother on the one hand, right? When you hear the athlete interviewed on 
about his success on the football field or the baseball field or wherever it is. He wants to give thanks to his mother, right? There's this, there is this instinctual desire to honor and praise our mother. But on the other hand, there is, at the same time, we have a culture that wants to denigrate the idea of motherhood. That somehow motherhood, as an occupation, if you want to think of it that way, is often denigrated and devalued. Something that is viewed instead of something to be celebrated, it's instead viewed as a form of chains that hold women back from becoming true people. People of real worth. People be able to pursue whatever they want to pursue, perhaps, to define themselves and draw some measure of value in this world. So, on the one hand, we want to praise our mothers. On the other hand, we want to denigrate what she does in being a mother, at least from a cultural, societal standpoint. So, there's, there's a lot of confusion. It's hard to be a mother. Not just because we wor- our moms worry about our, fa- our families and how they're doing, but also because the culture says what you're doing isn't worth much. But it is a high calling. Motherhood is a very high calling. In fact, it is a calling to provide shelter for the family. If you want to see how that is, go read the back half of Proverbs 31 as it talks about the godly woman and what she is doing. She is providing a shelter for her family. As we look at the the story, of course, of Adam and Eve and their creation, Eve was created to be a helpmate for Adam, without which he could never fulfill the calling that he'd been given to care for God's creation as God's representative. And while Adam was created first, God's delay in creating Eve wasn't wasn't to indicate in any way that she was somehow of secondary value. I think rather he waited to create Eve so that man would know how impossible his mission was without her. In other words, it was to elevate the significance and importance of her role as helping to provide a shelter for her family. For if Adam's calling is to exercise dominion over all the world, there is absolutely no way he can do that by himself. He he must be fruitful and multiply. And he can't do that, of course, without his wife. So the wife's job is of supreme importance. As man without her is incomplete and unable to do what he is called to do. Motherhood is a high calling. It's a very high calling. More specifically, women are to work this out by loving their husbands and children, working at home and submitting to their own husbands. Now, I know I've just said some things that would get me struck out by the, uh, the political, what's the, word I'm, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The political okay speech? What do we call that? Correct. Political correctness. Thank you. Golly, I hate it when those, that, can't think of those words. Just saying those things, that a mother, a woman is to work this out by loving her husband and children, work at home and submit to her husband. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'm not making that up. I'm just quoting from Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which says, So train the young women, this is Paul instructing Titus as he's, as he's leading the church, train the young women to love their husbands and children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Did you hear that? So that the word of God might not be reviled, this is how we are to look and celebrate what the woman is doing in the home. Now, I know this is not necessarily true for every single woman. We know women who are not mothers, and we know women who are not married. And that is not to say that you have to be married and you have to be a mother to be fitting in this role that you have as a woman, but it certainly would help us to see that to be not married or to have not children is the exception rather than the normal aspect of the, of the way. So there are certainly exceptions to everything. But the normative approach of a mother's calling is to be a mother. Again, all of this stuff I'm saying is extremely countercultural today. And to even to believe these things that the Bible clearly teaches puts you in the crosshairs of our culture. It is hard to be a mother who seeks to be faithful in her calling. The fact that we chafe just a bit when we hear this shows how much our culture has influenced our thinking. Instead of chafing, we should promote and applaud it, however, for Paul gives these instructions so that, as we said, the Word of God may not be reviled. So make no mistake, working in the home, this is what one author writes, builds something far more significant than any cathedral, the dwelling place of an immortal soul both for her child's fleshly tabernacle and his earthly abode. To be a woman is to have a high calling. As important it is to embrace and promote the Lord's teaching, it can add yet another reason to fret as a mother. Some of you who have been around here a long time may remember uh, our former church administrator, our first church lady, Debbie Williams, and I remember when I first got here and Mother's Day came around, she looked at me and she said, please don't preach a Mother's Day sermon. I'm like, why? Because every time, every time a Mother's Day sermon is preached about what motherhood is about, it just makes me feel exposed and guilty for all the ways I failed as a mother. There is a high calling on moms to be good mothers. And so if I'm going to send up here and tell you all the things that you as a mother are supposed to be doing... It could feel like I'm adding a big burden and a big piece of weight and a lot of guilt upon you. Which makes motherhood even more difficult. Think of it like this. In addition to the daily grind of raising sinners in a society that relishes sin, mothers feel the gravity of God's high calling of motherhood, the pressure to chafe against it from the culture, and the guilt that rises from doing neither well. This is the situation that our mothers are in. So it is no surprise that a mother daily faces loads of stress and anxiety, frustration, and even despair, perhaps especially on a day that's meant to honor mothers. I say all that because this morning, moms, my job is actually to encourage you and to give you hope and that's what we're going to do in light of this very, very difficult task. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at a mom's prayer. A mother's prayer is what we're going to look at. Now, it's, it's not called that in the Bible. We would find it called more often the Lord's Prayer. 
But I want you to make no mistake, this is a mom's prayer, and I want to walk through how that is and how this will encourage you. So here's one I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, where we're going to look at this teaching that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 15. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Please have a seat. So where I want to go with this is help you see, I want to draw out three very simple aspects of the teaching that we see Jesus giving with regard to the Lord's Prayer. The first is this. The first, which is very practical, I think especially for moms, we find it in verse six, in, uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Why do I think that's an encouraging thing? Because it says you are to pray in secret. Now that's good for a mom. She longs to find those moments alone, doesn't she? I, don't tell, I can't tell you how many moms that I have heard talk about just to get a moment alone, especially when their kids are young, that they go in the bathroom and they lock the door. Mom, have you ever done that to get away? Is there a mom in here that hasn't done that at some point to get away? Well, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what? It's okay to do that. In fact, he says, go in your room and shut the door. And here's the thing. When you're there, when you're in that place, you're just going nuts and you have to go in the bathroom and shut the door to have a moment alone. I don't want you to feel guilty about that. In fact, I want to encourage you to do it. But when you're in there, he invites you to pray. He invites you to pray. It's a moment that you have to yourself to pray. So do it. Why? Why does he say go in secret? What will happen there? He says when you go in secret and you pray, the Father will reward you. The Father will reward you. Now, why is that an important thing to remember? It's an important thing to, to remember because moms, I think especially living in this particular culture in which we find ourselves, are continually uh, concerned or struggling to find out where does their worth and value come from. Because the culture does not value motherhood. It values if you're contributing to some form of society that can be measured monetarily. 
What is the career that you've chosen? What degrees do you have? What are you doing in the world? If you tell them, oh, I work in the home, it's easy to be dismissed. It's easy to feel like you don't have a sense of worth and value because you're not getting it from the world. But when you go into the secret room, in this case, the bathroom, and you close the door and you pray to the Father, it says the Father himself will reward you. It's a reminder that your reward ultimately is not coming from the world. Now, the reward, the, the, the world may reward those women who invest in their careers, and there's certainly something to enjoy about that, and I don't want to diminish that. But that reward is temporal. That reward will not last. It will not endure. It will not stand the test of time. It endures as long as you continue to perform for it. But the minute you step away, so does the reward, so does the value, so does the sense of worth. What going into a secret room and knowing that your reward is, is from the Father is this reminder that you don't have to seek it from the world because you have it from the Father. You have it from the Father. The Father rewards the work that you do in this secret place. Now, there's a story that you guys are well familiar with in the Bible. I've used this. I love to tell this story because it's one of the more dramatic episodes that we see in the Old Testament. It's the story of the prophet Elijah. You guys know the prophet Elijah lived during the time uh, when the kingdom of Israel was split into the north and the south, and he primarily did work with the northern kingdom, which was always unfaithful to the Lord, and he was challenging the king continually, especially the one who was living in his time, a king named King Ahab, who was a worshiper of Baal. And uh, Elijah had challenged them to come and meet him on top of the mountain where they would finally decide whose God was God. And that's the episode where they both build an altar, expecting the God who is real to answer with fire. And of course, the, the Baal prophets, which there are 400 of them, are praying and dancing and cutting themselves all morning long and nothing happens. And then, of course, Elijah gets up and prays and fire falls from heaven in such a dramatic fashion, you know, that it licks up the, the, the sacrifice uh, the wood on the altar, the altar itself, and all this water that he had, had poured over it. And the people, you know, mum, stumbling over themselves, say, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. He, he, he orders them to seize the prophets of Baal, and they put him to death right there on the spot. It's a very dramatic scene in the Bible. And yet, Elijah grows very discouraged because the queen wasn't there. And when she hears of it, instead of recognizing, oh, Baal must not be a valid God, I need to worship Yahweh, she just vows to do to him what he did to her prophets. And so he runs into the desert seeking to die because he's greatly discouraged. But the Lord leads him to a secret place, a secret room, as it were, in the Sinai region. And he, while he's there, he's tucked him away in this little cave, and he causes great fire to come, he causes a great whirlwind to come, and the rocks are shaking and the mountain is shaking. But in each case, it says the Lord was not in the fire, the Lord was not in the, the, the great whirlwind. And after all those great mighty things that represented a lot of what Elijah's ministry was all about, there is this quietness. The Bible interprets it a gentle whisper. And God speaks to him in this quiet moment this gentle whisper, as if to remind Elijah that, look, I know you're completely discouraged in everything you've done, but I want you to know that you're right where you're supposed to be. 
You're right in the middle of my plans. Now, how did Elijah know that? It certainly wasn't because of what he saw evidenced by his work of ministry. It was only because he heard the quiet voice of God in the secret place. That's how he knew. He found his ultimate reward not to be seeing all of Israel finally turn away from Baal and come to follow Yahweh. That would have been great, of course. But that never happened in his lifetime. His reward was knowing that he was right where God wanted him to be. Mothers, you may look out at your children at some point and you think, you know what? I wanted this for my children. I wanted that for my children. I wanted them to, to be doing this. I wanted them to be living this way. I wanted them to be, have accomplished this by now. Because oftentimes, if you're a mother, you're forced to derive your sense of value and worth from what your children are accomplishing, as if that's a measure of what you were successful in doing. But I will tell you, probably every mother in here can tell you that their kids have a mind of their own. <laughs> they are their own people. They are not this work of clay that you get to mold. If you're going to measure your sense of worth and value based on who your children are becoming, you're putting yourself in a position that you were never meant to be in. You're putting yourself in a position where Elijah himself was in. There are going to be moments when you just want to run away. So when you do, go into the secret room and pray to the Father who hears you in secret and will reward you. Now, maybe you might argue with me a little bit because, moms, if you've ever done that, you can say, yes, but as soon as I go in there and lock the door, they know where I am and they come banging on it. My time is only short. It's moment. It's only moments. Well, you know, the prayer that he teaches you to pray doesn't take very long. In fact, let's, let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And give... oh, I lost it. Okay, that took you 21 seconds. Can you at least get 21 seconds in the bathroom? It's all you need. Look at what he says in verses uh, 7 and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if you go into the secret room and you pray for 21 seconds, the Lord's Prayer, you are doing so much, not because you have reciting some magical formula. For one, it's, it's aiming your prayers, actually. It's shaping your own thoughts and what they are to be about. And it's also not doing what he says. You don't need to heap words upon words upon words. Yes, your children all have unique circumstances. They all have particular needs. But you know what? Every single one of them can be found 
uh, prayed for in this prayer. Now, I know there's a, there is a pressure that religion itself, the practice of religion, will place on you. If, if you've been coming to church a long time, then you've probably heard a lot of the heroes of the faith elevated because of the way they did certain things. For example, if you, if you hear about the Puritans, and you know, sometimes we will incorporate in our, in our liturgy one of the Puritans' prayers. And they're beautiful. You know, and they, they, they express so much. They're very poetic. They're, they're very lengthy. And, and I would encourage you to find one of those and read it. But you don't necessarily have to do that. And the, one of the dangers of introducing those things is that, is that we think this is the measure of our maturity in Christ. How much are we able to pray? And how eloquent are we able to pray? When you hear stories of Martin Luther, and Martin Luther would pray for, you know, six hours a day, perhaps. But you know, when you drill down more, you realize that a lot of what his prayers were, were a lot of those hours were made up of just confessing his sin. And a lot of that was before he really understood that justification comes by faith. So it's not that we need to put some measure on ourselves, but how much time did you spend in prayer? And, and that even gets a thing to, to think about the whole notion of uh, practicing a quiet time with God, which I would very much encourage you to do, by the way. But people often put these time limits. It's got to be 30 minutes. You've got to spend 30 minutes with the Lord. And maybe you, maybe you read a, a Bible reading and you read a chapter of the Bible and it takes you five minutes and you think, I've got 25 minutes. What am I going to do? And if I don't spend this 25 minutes, then somehow I have failed. But you, don't you see what you're doing? You're trying to derive a sense of worth and value by some religious practice. Which again, runs completely contrary to the way Jesus is teaching us to pray. He says, go into your secret room and lock your door. And the Father who hears will reward you. The Father will reward you. 21 seconds. That's all it takes. The short prayer frees you from this sense of religious performance. So the points one and two, if you're taking notes, points one was... Pray in the secret place. Point two was, guess what? It doesn't have to be long. It could be short. Point three is this. I want to look at the prayer itself. Because this, the prayer, at every point, at every, every phrase, points us to something that the Savior is doing. There is this aroma of the Savior as you go through each petition in the Lord's Prayer. So I want just to think about that for a minute. For example, when we begin, what do we say? We say, our Father. Just that right there, our Father. How is it that we can call God Father? Because you were once far off from the Lord. You had to be adopted into His family in order to call Him Father. And for you to be adopted, there had to have been a great adoption price paid. Who paid that price? <laughs> because it was a very high price. What did you owe before the Lord? You owed a death. And that's exactly what Christ paid. That you might be adopted into his family so that you could simply pray, Father. Our Father. What do we pray next? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Do you know what you mean when you say that? Do you know what that means, by the way? It means holy be your name. May your name be lifted up. May your name be uh, held in majesty. May your name be made known. Hallowed may be held as something that is holy other. May the world see it that way. In other words, we are right off the bat in this prayer stating our whole entire goal is existence. Our goal, your goal existence is to, if I were to ask you in this form, what is the chief end of man, you would say to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When you pray this prayer, the very first thing you're doing is saying that. You're saying, I'm realigning where my life is supposed to be aimed. I want to know what the true reward is. It's the Father. And my job is simply, it's very simple, is to hallow his name, is to glorify my God. Well, that brings up the next question, how do we do that? Well, we need his kingdom to come. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom, God's kingdom. We need God's kingdom. That's a form of rescue in some ways. And how does that remind us of Jesus? What does Jesus say when he announces his ministry? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He is the one bringing the kingdom. So again, when we say this prayer, we are recognizing there has to be a work of the Savior to bring the kingdom of God. And what does he say once we're in the kingdom of God, how we're to live? Not our will, but yours be done. May your will be done on earth as it's being done already in heaven. How is God's will done in the heavenly places where there is no sin that exists? It is done in complete accordance with his own character and nature and will. And we are asking, Lord, may that be the case here in our lives. And guess what? You're praying this for your, on behalf of your children too, by the way. If this is your aim, it's also meant to be your children's aim. So if you want to pray for your children, mothers... All you got to do is think of the Lord's Prayer as your prayer for your children. And in every case, the Savior has a significant role. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That is such a great petition in the Lord's Prayer. Remember, he's, at, he's telling us, he's inviting us to pray for the little things. Daily bread. That is not something that you would necessarily put on the grand radar. Here's my, when you write your prayer requests that I hope that you guys would do sometimes on those cards and put them in there. How many of you put, I'm, I'm praying for my daily bread? No, we put the big things. Oh, I'm struggling with, you know, my, my, my relative is struggling with this very serious situation. You know, or I'm dealing with depression or someone's sick and needs healing or needs a job. We pray for the big things, the things that only come along hopefully once in a while. But he says, pray for your daily needs, which, which by the way, mirrors the way Jesus' uh, uh, earthly ministry was about with his disciples. What do you invite them to do? Follow him. That means every day they were following Jesus, literally there together on a daily basis, depending on him for food. Because what did they leave behind? When Peter left, Peter, James, and John, what did they leave behind? They left their nets, which was their source of income, and they followed Jesus. There was a sense in which they were literally dependent upon their daily bread by staying close to Jesus. When Jesus ascended into heaven, or right before he did, and he gave instructions to his disciples, what does he say about where he's going to be? 
He says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So as we pray this prayer, we are reminded that Jesus himself is with us, meeting our most basic everyday needs. All right, what's the next petition? When I don't say this all together, get it, right? (laughs) Forgive us our debts. Is that where we are? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's kind of a double whammy there, isn't there? That's the one that he teaches on a little bit, and it makes us a little bit nervous because he says, if you forgive your brother his sins, then the Lord will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your your, your brother his sins, then the Lord will not forgive you. And it sounds like it's this very conditional aspect, but you realize when 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 you investigate that a little more, what you're examining is a measure of trust. What do I actually trust the work of Jesus to do? I trust the work of Jesus to be enough to pay for my debts, forgive me my debts, but I also trust the work of Jesus to be enough to satisfy the justice that I so long to have when other people wrong me. So it's kind of a a double whammy with regard to how much are you actually trusting God to do for you. And only the work of Jesus is able to accomplish both of those things. Both justice on your behalf and justice for you. So again, we are, we are smelling the aroma of the work of Jesus with every petition in the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, how is it? How is it that Jesus plays a role in leading us away from temptation and delivering us from the evil one? I would say there's two very important ways. One, he leads us by giving us his word. He is the word. He shows us the way we are to live. He talks about the way to live. And secondly, because he went to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh on which he can write his law. There is a way in which he has given you an ability that you did not have before because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can only come to you because you've been made clean and holy and prepared for his presence. Deliver us from the evil one. The evil one would like nothing more than to take you down. But Jesus' victory is already over him. We know that. That was the victory of death. The rising from the grave shows that the war is over. David has beaten Goliath. Death itself has been killed. The evil one has no power of you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, Peter says. How does Peter know that? Peter had a pretty unique experience with Jesus, didn't he? Jesus says to him, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's Jesus saying it, but I have prayed for you. Deliver me from the evil one. Again, the work of the Savior is the one who does this. So you're in this little room, moms, you're praying in secret, and you have a short 21 seconds, and you're saying this prayer, and every petition is, is making the scent of Christ in his work that much sweeter, pointing you back to your own Savior. This is where my worth comes, and this is how it's able to come to me. 
And as you pray that prayer and think of it for yourself, you are also praying that prayer and thinking of it on behalf of your children. For there's different ways that Satan can come after you. He would like nothing more than to, to make you think that you have failed in your job as a mother. And this prayer is a reminder, not only that you need a Savior, but that your children need a Savior, and you are not it. Moms, hear that. You are not your children's Savior. That's a hard thing to hear, because moms want to take that upon themselves, feeling the burden, the weight of every struggle their children go through. But that's what the Lord's Prayer frees you from. They need a Savior that is not you. So when you're in that secret room and you're praying, remember that. Resist the devil and his words of condemnation for your job as a mother. And you know what happens when you pray that prayer and that guilt is relieved? It's a lot easier to just be the kind of mom that your kids need you to be. Because you're not dealing with all these pressures that are coming from the world. You've been set free from them. You're not being motivated by the wrong things. It's a wonder. So moms, I hope this encourages you this morning that you have a prayer that Jesus gave for you. Go in that secret room and lock the door. Get away from those children and your husband and pray in secret and expect to be rewarded. And it doesn't take long. It's aligning your mind and your heart and your thoughts after the work that Jesus has accomplished. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you give us the Lord's Prayer, which is such a powerful prayer to help us understand how we are to live in this world, who we are in this world, how we're to do what seems to be the impossible task that we've been calling, uh, that we've been given to do. Father, I pray especially this morning for the mothers that are here, that you would encourage them, that you would allow them to drink deeply from these truths that we find uh, in the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.